Okay. Nate, you want to dial me back just a hair? Thank you. As we pick up tonight in the book of Exodus chapter 20, it's worth recalling um, that we've transitioned from the first half of the book, which is primarily narrative. It tells the story of God delivering his people from Egypt to the second half, um, which is made up of, uh, of legal material, of the giving of the law and the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. Um, with some slight interruptions, that's the rest of the book moving forward. In fact, that will continue not just to the end of Exodus, but into the next book, Leviticus, um, and, and we won't really resume the narrative and leave Mount Sinai until the book of Numbers. So tonight we pick up in chapter 20, um, and chapter 20 records what are known in the scriptures as the ten words and what we often um, know of in, in modern language as the ten commandments. Now, uh, the format of where we're going tonight is is relatively interesting. We saw in chapter 19 that they've gathered around Sinai, that they've taken time to prepare um, for the Lord to reveal himself to the people of Israel. And what we're going to see tonight is first uh, first the, um, the giving of the, the Ten Commandments, and we're going to see the people's reaction to that. Uh, and then it's going to jump into what's called later, we won't hit this till chapter 24, the Book of the Covenant. And so the rest of chapter 20, um, 21, 22, 23, that all contains uh, this legal book that's later called the Book of the Co Covenant. And then we'll see, hopefully tonight, um, in chapter 24 as that covenant is ratified. And so we're going to try and cover the whole thing together tonight because it really is one piece. Okay, And so with that being said, we'll pick up in verse 1. And God spoke all these words saying, okay, now, if you were to just jump into chapter 20 from chapter 19, that's relatively abrupt. Um, we had just seen God sending Moses back down the mountain to the people to warn them to keep their distance again. While Moses is there, God speaks so that not merely Moses, but all the people hear what follows in this passage. And so he speaks to them all and he says in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so I want you to notice that before he gets to these commandments, these shall and shall not statements, he begins with an introduction that's rooted in two realities. You cannot understand the Ten Commandments if you just um, remove them from this context. Context. Before he says what he wants them to do, he reminds them both of who he is, and also what he has done for them. And the first thing he says here is, I am the Lord your God. Now you may remember all the way back in chapter 3 when Moses first encounters the Lord in the burning bush. He says, who shall I say is sending me? And he says, I am that I am, right? He identifies himself as the Lord. And so he reminds them of this idea of his identity here and effectively the ten commandments then are the you shall be who you shall be to the I am that I am because I am this type of God you should be this type of people 
In fact, that brings us to the first way, that the first lens that we should view, not merely the Ten Commandments, but the law of the covenant through, which is that it demonstrates and displays the character of God. We've seen over and over again that God's plan during the course of the book of Exodus is to reveal himself to his people and then ultimately to the nations. And so he constantly pointed to his actions in delivering um, Israel, in judging Egypt, and we saw over and over again a demonstration so that we might know him, so that Egypt might know him. And in the same way, the law is a window into the character of God, okay? The law is what the law is because the God of the law is who he is. And so he begins with his identity, but he adds to it, I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so these Ten Commandments then are not a front door into a relationship with God. The relationship with God was began on his initiative as he carries them out. And then as a response, he calls them to live in a certain way. You see, the New Testament does the same thing for us as Christians. For example, if you look at the book of Ephesians, you can, like the book of Exodus, split it into two halves. If you start with the first three chapters, for the most part, they are descriptive. They're explaining what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And so the book opens in verse 3 saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and then goes on to delineate all of those spiritual blessings from eternity past to eternity future. The same way in chapter 2, he starts again and he says, for you were once, and he talks about our condition before Jesus saved us. And he says in verse 4, but God has mercifully made you alive in Jesus Christ. And then in the second half of chapter 2, once again, he describes what's happened. And he says, those of you who are Gentiles were far off, but he has brought you near. And he's taken the two people the Gentiles and the Jews, and made them one in Christ. And even in chapter 3, he maintains this descriptive mentality. But in chapter 4, verse 1, he pivots, and he says this, Therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you were called. And if you look at just the imperative verbs, right? An imperative is a command. If I say to you, go, that's an imperative. If you look at just the imperative verbs in the book of Ephesians, there's only two before chapter 4, verse 1, and they're both the word remember, which I think we would recognize are directly correlated to the descriptive part of that. But if you were to highlight all of the uh, imperative verbs following chapter 4, verse 1, the page turns bright yellow. Okay? He unpacks that idea. What does it look to walk in a manner worthy of this calling that he's just laid out for us? Okay, and so the first half of Ephesians is here is what God has done for you. And the second half is therefore you should live in this type of way. We could see the same thing in the division of the book of Romans. Paul takes 11 chapters in the book of Romans to walk through God's great plan of redemption, both beginning in our, with our need for it, then what God has done in Jesus Christ, how that's accessed through faith, how that salvation is played out not just in saving us, but in the day-to-day -day life, um, as well as where it's going. He makes an aside in 9, 10, and 11 to prove that this doesn't deny the faithfulness of God in keeping his promises to Israel. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 1, I beg you, therefore, brethren, because of God's mercies, chapters 1 through 11, uh, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. 
the order there is very important. God has sacrificed himself in his son, therefore offer yourself as a living sacrifice. And we see the same thing here in the Old Testament. The Ten Commandments are rooted both in the identity of God as well in what, in what he has done for his people. And so we can insert, although it's not there in the original Hebrew, a therefore in verse 3. Because I am this God, because I have done this on your behalf, therefore, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now it may seem, as we read this very first commandment here, um, that the wording on it is a little bit strange. Instead of just being a proclamation that there are no other gods... He says, you will have no other gods before me. And some have argued that this demonstrates that this early in Israel's history, they hadn't come to a monotheistic understanding of the world. They would argue, look, if we've been looking at the book of Exodus, we've seen that Jehovah sees what he's done as a judgment on the gods of Egypt. But I think that would be a misreading of why this commandment is put in this way. It is true that there is no such God as Baal, but there is Baal worship. It is true that there are all sorts of false gods, and therefore they are non-existent, but they are still falsely worshipped. And so here he says, you shall have no other gods before me. And what he's saying here is not merely, I am the best of all gods, or I'm the only one you're allowed to worship. But he's recognizing that for them, they need to worship the one true God. And this point will be built upon to the degree that in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verse 1, uh, God will proclaim through Moses, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so the first commandment here is you shall have no other gods before me. Now, as we look at the rest of the commandments, it divides pretty easily into two halves. One are responsibilities unto God and the other are responsibilities unto people. That's why Jesus says that the, so the total of the law is fulfilled in these two commandments. You shall love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. We know that these Ten Commandments are eventually put on two tablets of stone, and maybe the division between stone one and stone two is along these lines. The first four commandments being on stone one, our responsibilities to God, and the second ones being on stone two. However, it is important to recognize that you can't isolate the two halves. And so, uh, we'll see this later tonight, you cannot settle for a piety that leaves out social responsibility and honor God. And so he'll make clear over and over again that how you treat other people in actuality reflects how you feel about God. That's why John the Apostle in his epistle can say, do not say that you love God who you have not seen when you do not love your brother who you have seen. Right? He says that these two go together, these two coincide. So they're two separate but related commandments. The reason I lay all of that groundwork for us this morning or this evening is because when we look at the first command, we have to understand that that's also the first one we break. That it is impossible to break command two or command three or command six or command seven. Any of the commands that follow always follow the breaking of the first command. In other words, the, uh, the beginning of sin in the human life is not worshiping God 
alone, not worshiping God rightly. And so the first commandment um, is, in one sense, summed up and expressed in the keeping of the rest of the commandments. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah condemns the people of Israel. God, speaking through Jeremiah, says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have made for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so the recognition here uh, is that first they have turned away from the living God, and then they have created substitutes. And it's in that substitution worship, not only that we falsely worship in the vertical sense, but also that we begin to take advantage of, disrespect, abuse people in the horizontal sense. If you truly worship God as God, then it is impossible, it is impossible to murder. We'll come back to that later, but we'll leave it there for now. Related is the second commandment where it says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now notice that this one isn't just stated but it's followed with a long explanation and a warning. But let's look at the statement. First, it says they're not to make any carved image or any likeness of anything in heaven or on the earth or beneath or in the water, which is, I think we would all recognize, relatively universal. But if you read that on its own, it sounds like uh, God is condemning any uh, iconic representation of anything in the known world. And so this would condemn photographs and statues and paintings, etc. Now, we know that that's not what this commandment means because it's only a few chapters from here that God starts to lay out directions for the tabernacle and the tabernacle is covered in artistic expressions of things in the world as we know it, pomegranates and angels, etc. Okay. What he is speaking to here is not just the... Um, the personification, that's not the word I want, not just um, creating a work of art, a representation, that's the word I wanted, not just the representation, but the purpose of the representation, which he says in verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. So when we put this together, he says, you're not to make any representation of something on earth that you should worship. Now, there's something more going on here that we may not pick up on. He uses two words here for these little statues that we would call idols, an image and a likeness. And the last time we encountered both of those words together is all the way back in the book of Genesis when it says in Genesis 1.28 that God created us, human beings, in his image, in his likeness, he made us male and female. And so the problem with idolatry is not just, not solely, not solely that uh, in worshiping an idol you worship a false god, but also that any representation of God falls short of actually representing the real living and true God. If you read the book of Isaiah or if you read in the Psalms, they will criticize 
even we could say mock idolatry. And what they'll say is, your God has ears, but he cannot hear your prayers. He has eyes, but he cannot see. He has a mouth, but he does not speak. He has arms, and yet you're the one who must carry your God. Now, it's easy to read that and think that Israel misunderstands the pagan worship that goes on around them. Okay? Like those religions that have representative idols today, they don't actually believe that stone statue is their god. It's just a representative of their god. Now, it is worth mentioning that the Canaanite religions, the Egyptian religion, the religions of the Middle East at this time did believe that having a physical representation gave you access to that god. And so it gave locality to that god. It, it um, anchored them in the world where you could interact with them. And so it's more than just uh, a painting. It has an intention to it. What the psalmist and what Isaiah is mocking is not that they worship these stone objects, it's that those stone objects perfectly represent the gods that they worship. Because their gods cannot answer their prayers because they're not real gods. Their gods cannot lift up their burdens because they're not real gods. Their gods do not speak because they are not real. And so effectively, what Isaiah and the psalmist says is, those idols perfectly represent what you worship. Okay? And here we find, here we find that the representative, the intended manifestation on earth uh, that God had for himself is us. Which brings us right back to this law and the second purpose of this law. Not only does this law in its commands and its do's and do nots manifest God's character, but it also calls us to represent that character on earth. And so idolatry is not just a denial of the real character of God, it's also a denial of our calling as human beings to live in light of that character. Now he goes on and after saying you shall not bow down to them, he gives this reason for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now in modern English, we really only use that word jealousy in the negative sense. Jealous is a bad attribute. But the Hebrews and the Greeks and most of the ancient world understood that there was a good jealousy, excuse me, and a bad jealousy. I encountered a distinction this week that I find to be helpful between the two of them. The bad jealousy, the one that we always talk about in modern English, is jealous of, right? When somebody has a life that you want or a relationship that you want uh, or you, you are jealous of the time that they're giving to another person, that's the negative. But many times when this word is used in Scripture like it is here, it would be better represented as jealous for, okay? And so when the Bible does unpack God's divine jealousy and provides us a metaphor as a window into what he's saying. It's the jealousy of a husband for his spouse. Okay, the representation is not one of insecurity. The representation is one that a spouse owes their spouse their affection and love and only them their affection and love. And so when he says, I'm jealous for you, there's a relational aspect to this, that I am the one true God and worthy of your worship, that I alone am your God. And so when he says <coughs> that he's a jealous God here, that's, that's a positive thing. It's a rec- recognition of the fact that he is truly God. And I'll add that it's also a good thing for us because the nature of idolatry inherently is slavery. 
the Bible reiterates this and points to it over and over again. Jesus puts it very simply when he says, for whoever sins is a slave of sin. And so the recognition is here that God is the only God worth serving. And anything else that we serve, anytime we uh, deny our image of God humanity and worship something that is creature or created instead of the creator, we also become subhuman. We deny our humanity. We kneel at the foot of something less than what we were called to be. And so God's jealousy is on our behalf as well. And then it adds <coughs> that he's a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, first thing we need to notice there is the, a contrast, those who love and those who hate. And we also need to notice that the contrast is one of duration. And so for those who hate, it's three or four generations, but for those who love, it's generations of thousands. Okay? Now, there's one way that we probably should not understand this, which is basically that God will punish your children for your sins, that he would punish the sins of the father upon the children. And the reason we can be relatively confident that that's not what's being stated here is twice in the Old Testament, God denies that he will do that. He says that a man will die for his own sins and not the sins of his son, nor the sins of his father. And so what he's probably recognizing here, what he's stating is not a one-to-one -one comparison that uh, we will reap the consequences of our parents' sin because, because God's really proactive about this wickedness, um, but just that there is a gen generational precedent that we set with our lives. And so what's recognized here is that children often follow in the footsteps of the fathers um, and that that does not excuse the behavior. However, we also see that it's not just to the third and fourth generation, but that he showers or shows steadfast love to the thousands of generations of those who love me, which is another way of saying that it's inexhaustible, right? From generation to generation, God's goodness will be shown. I do feel like it's worth mentioning here that we do see in the Bible that God mercifully gives children, or I should say God shows mercy to children on behalf of their fathers. Israel knows this firsthand. Over and over again, God says, because of your father Abraham. When we get into the history of the kings of Israel, over and over again, he will say, because of David's faithfulness, I will not. Okay, And so maybe some of you are acquainted enough with your own generational history to recognize that even in your life. When I look at my childhood and I lay it alongside those of my friends who were in the same social circles, in the same circumstances, doing the same things, and I trace the trajectory of my life and theirs, the primary distinction is the fact that God saved me. But I've never been able to shake the reality of my great-grandmother, who was the only one in my extended family who loved Jesus. She died at the age of 103, and I knew her in, in most of her just passing years, and she was incredibly healthy till the month that she died. She lived on her own in a little apartment where, she, where there was a staff available that she never needed. 
It was only in the last month that she was moved to her bed and then she passed away relatively peacefully. But I know, I know that she prayed for me because she prayed for everybody. And so I've always resonated with this verse in that context. And so here we have the first two commands, and then let's look at the third one, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And so here we get reference to the name of the Lord, and remember once again that has to do with character. God's name and God's character go hand in hand. What does it mean to take his name in vain? The word vain here is just a translation of a word that means empty. It means to treat his name as nothing. And it's, uh, it's often been applied, if you've been around the church long enough, specifically in terms of using God's name profanely, right, as a curse or as a profanity. And it's clear to me that that is an aspect of what's being addressed here. Have you ever noticed how some people have been swearing for such a long time that it's no longer a meaningful word at all? It's the equivalent of um, right? They don't know what to say right now, and so they just drop an F-bomb, okay? In the same way, oftentimes profanity is not actually conveying any meaning at all except for your frustration, except for your anger. You're hijacking God's name without actually referring, without actually referencing. In fact, usually, because we're doing it in frustration and anger, in direct denial of the fact that he is God and his character being good. But included in this idea of vanity is probably more than that. Not just profanity, but also we would have to add flippancy. Okay, Flippancy, that we would use God's name, once again, not referring to God. There's an occasion in um, one of C.S. Lewis's book, books where an artist gets to heaven and he looks at the beautiful landscape and he just says, God. And this artist who's a resident of heaven next to him says, God, what? Right? That's the idea of flippancy, that, that you can't just use that word without actually conveying its meaning. But I think we could include in this that it would also involve uh, hypocrisy, that to use God's name in vain would be to use it when it's not actually meaningful for you, to wear God's name as a badge, to use it to demonstrate your quality of character, to show that you're a member of the special club when you actually have no relationship. That would be an empty use of God's name. And then the last one would be to use it um, in swearing falsely, right? To swear to God that something that's not actually true, right? Once again, you're, you're not only denying God's character because he knows you're lying, right? So the one person whose judgment actually matters, you're ignoring and then utilizing his name to fool all of those who don't. Um, but more than that, more than that, you're, uh, you're using his name uh, emptily, and he just adds here that he will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Effectively, God says, I take my name seriously. He continues here in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner that's within your gates. Okay, and so what they're called to here is to remember the Sabbath day, and then it says to keep it holy. 
The word here for remember doesn't mean just don't forget. It doesn't mean just put it on the calendar. We've seen a couple of times in our journey through the Bible when this word has been used of God, that when Noah was on the boat after the rain had stopped, that God remembered Noah and the waters began to subside. That doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Noah and went, oh, shoot, I should do something about that. It means that he took action. In the same way, it says early in the book of Exodus that God remembered Israel in delivering them. He took action. And so when it says remember the Sabbath day, it might be better translated observe the Sabbath day. Okay? It's not just a mental recalling to mind that there is such a thing as a day of rest, but actually to observe it. And when it says here to keep it holy, that's recognizing the distinction. God has given us a rhythm in life of six and one. Six days of work, and then a holy day, a unique day, a day that is not like the six, okay? And he tells us what, uh, what to do on the Sabbath, which is, for the most part, a negative. It's what not to do on the Sabbath. And what does he say? Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. And then notice, he adds to this, nor will anyone else in the land of Israel. And this, I think, is a helpful addition because effectively he says is that doesn't mean just the adults of the family and you can make the kids do the work to get by that doesn't mean just the um the those in your household those in your family but your servants you can keep working that doesn't just mean the national israelites but also any foreigner in your land and so they can't get around this observing the sabbath by making others work the sabbath that seems to be the emphasis here. It is supposed to be a universal day off in Israel. And then he gives us a reason. Now, interestingly enough, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words are reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy. That in and of itself is not surprising. Even the name of the book, Deuteronomy, means second law. It's Moses' rehearsing of the law for this generation that uh, is about to enter into the land. What's interesting, though, is in this particular commandment, he roots the reason for the Sabbath, not in creation like we see here, but in their past experience as slaves in Egypt. Okay, so there's more going on here than we'll read about today, but let's just focus on the reason that he gives here. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, and so what does it say here? Once again, Israel is supposed to rest on the seventh day because they represent, because they reflect God. Okay, and so it's part of our um, imaging, part of our likeness that we're supposed to maintain this rhythm. Now, this is the only commandment that is not specifically reiterated in the New Testament for Christians. All ten of the other commandments as given in the Old Testament, we could cite direct references to maintaining that they are still to be required of Christians. That does not mean that the Sabbath is not or uh, 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 that doesn't mean that the Sabbath in the New Testament is never spoken of. But he does say multiple times in the letters of Paul that we are not to be held accountable by people because we do or do not observe the Sabbath or holy days or the rituals. Basically, Paul recognizes that in some sense, 
the Sabbath, like the sacrifices of the Old Testament, like the clean kosher laws, have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so we already keep the Sabbath because Jesus kept it on our behalf. The author of Hebrews makes the same point, that Jesus Christ is our rest and we have fully entered into that. And so we don't live our lives looking for rest, but from a place of rest. However, the, uh, <coughs> the concept of the Sabbath predates the law of Israel, right? We read about it and its principle all the way back in the book of Genesis. In fact, some commentators believe the reason it says remember the Sabbath here is because they already know about this principle of the Sabbath. And it's always been intriguing to me that we can understand why we have a generally 30-day month. Why is that? Because of the lunar cycle, right? We can understand why we have a generally 364, now that we're super precise, 364 and a quarter day year. Why? That's because of the cycle of the sun. But why consistently across humanity do we have a seven-day week? There's no cycle there except for this one, okay? And so here's, here's what I would say. Jesus criticizing the religious leaders of his days who were dogmatic about keeping the Sabbath, he says this, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God didn't have a day of rest and go, I wonder if I could create someone just to burden them with not being able to do anything on the seventh day. No, the Sabbath, this idea of a seventh day of rest is a gift that God has given to humanity. Okay? It's a reminder that life is more than work. Now, to be clear, this is one of the unique things about the Christian origin story, the creation story. If you look at all of the myths of the ancient world in this area, spanning the whole area of Rome and Greece and Mesopotamia, in almost every one, the initial condition of the human race, what we call paradise, is a place without work. And work is a direct consequence of whatever went wrong. In fact, many of the uh, gods who were worshipped in the land of Canaan, uh, they created human beings to do the work because they didn't want to do it. Okay? But if you go back to the book of Genesis, work is built into the ideal initial plan for human beings. They're given a garden to work. They have a job to be fruitful and multiply. Okay? And so work is dignified from the biblical perspective, because it's something that God did. In six days, he created, and so in his image, we create. He flourished and made fruitful, and so we follow in those footsteps. We are called to cultivate. God makes a garden, but he gives Adam to cultivate and to keep it. All of those things point to human intention, and so I'll tell you very frankly that we as human beings need work. We're designed to need work. But like everything else in our world, we can take that thing that we need and we can make it our master. And so we need work, but the seventh day of rest is to remember that there's more. There's more than just work. That not all of life can be expressed in our nine to five. Um, also, obviously, and we'll see more of this as we read through the laws of the Old Testament, the Sabbath day was not just to be a day of doing nothing, but a day of worship a day of spending time with God. I don't know if you are this way, but when I was a child, it wasn't uncommon for us to have extended family rhythms. And they were holidays, right? 
Christmas and Thanksgiving, we would gather together, but there was some family that we were so close to that we would head there once a week, right? And so we had the regular, in fact, for us, it was Sunday family meal with my grandparents. God's design in the Sabbath is to have a rhythm or a habit of intentional relationship between him and his people. Now, the Sabbath originally was, uh, was celebrated on Saturday. The calendar in Jewish, Jewish reckoning, reckoning put Sunday as the first day of week, and the seventh day then would be Saturday. And so if you know any modern-day Jews who observe the Sabbath at sundown Friday night till sundown Saturday night, that is the Sabbath. And so it's worth asking, well, why then as Christians do we tend to associate the Sabbath with Sunday? And the reason is because that's what we see in the practice of the early church, that they were in the habit, according to Acts chapter 20, of gathering on the first day of the week. And why is that the case? Because that's the day Jesus rose from the dead. Like I said, the Jews saw rest as something they were working towards at the end, like we see the weekend today. But the original Christian community recognized that the fulfilling of the Sabbath in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ meant that that's where they start their week from. And, and so the uh, practice in the early church seems to have shifted from Saturday to Sunday, which is a side note is why our weekend in modern Western culture is both Saturday and Sunday to accommodate both those days. Um, that's why none of us are excited about Wednesday. Okay. Um, so... Those first four commandments all have a Godward orientation. You shall worship no gods before me. You shall not make an idol and worship and bow down to that. You shall not take my name in vain. You shall honor the Sabbath. And now it shifts and it focuses on how we treat one another. And the fifth command, notice here, is verse 12. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the command here is given to honor father and mother. Now, <clears throat> it is interesting that some of the rabbis actually divided the law and kept this with the first half. And the reason was not just because this was a responsibility we owed to God. You could say that about all the commandments that are going to follow. Um, but specifically because our relationship with our parents is our, is our first encounter with the likeness of God. Right? The fatherhood of God is one of the great windows throughout the Old and New Testament of our relationship with God. In fact, the Gospel of Luke, when it's tracing the genealogy to Jesus, starts with Adam, who is, what, the son of God. Okay? And so it sees humanity um, as God's children. And so when we encounter our father and mother, they, in some sense, representatively act like God in our lives. They take care of us, they set the rules, they discipline us, and so... For many of us, how we're raised by our parents directly reflects on how we guess who God is. And so the rabbis place this with the top four for that reason. But it also makes perfect sense why this would be the header for how we treat one another because this is your first and primary relationship and therefore your first and primary responsibility. And so what does it say here? To honor your father and your mother, okay? Now, this can be 
difficult, I think, sometimes for us to swallow because we all know of, whether they're our parents or the parents of others, that there are some uh, parents that don't seem worthy of honor. But the idea here is not that they are deserving of treatment, but that they're offices. Okay? If you were to take this idea of honor your father and mother and build upon it, because it only gives ten words, and yet what the ten words mean is a whole lot more. These aren't just the ten things to do or do not do. Each one, and we'll see this going forward, is much broader than it first looks. Clearly, honor your father and mother would be built upon to, to honor any office, any relationship in your life that honor is due to, which is exactly what Paul says in the book of Romans chapter 13. If there's an office that's owed honor, give it honor. There's a military saying that you respect the office and not the officer, right? You may have a general who's overseeing you who is just a total jerk, but you treat them with respect because they wear the uniform and the uniform deserves respect. When it says honor your father and mother here, that's the recognition, okay? And so this isn't, this isn't blinding yourself and pretending there's something they're not. It's recognizing the role, the social role for what it is. You see, in today's day and age, most of our roles are functional in nature, meaning that they serve some sort of purpose and that they're achieved. But social roles in the ancient world were mostly given, okay? And so you were a son in your family just because you were a son. It wasn't an earned thing, and that was true of most of the roles in society. In fact, even think of monarchy, which was the primary form of government for most of history. You were the king just because you were the king's son. It was just given to you. You didn't earn it. You weren't voted for for the people. Now, I'm fully aware of the, um, of the problems that systems like that present, but I also want you to recognize the stability that that provides to society, okay? Because when roles are given and not earned, then you know what your responsibilities are and you can be held accountable for them. You know where you're headed in your life um, and what it looks like. And when it says honor your father and mother here, what does it actually look like? Obviously, it looks like respect, but the word here used for honor is stronger than that. It means, it means to treat with weight. Okay. One place where we see this expounded upon um, by Jesus himself is when he criticizes the religious leaders of his day who neglect taking care of their parents in their old age and say, anything that I would have spent taking care of my parents, I'm going to give to the church instead. It's Corbin. It's a gift to God. And he says, you neglect the commandments of God and replace it with the traditions of men. And so honor means taking care of your parents in recognition that they took care of you. Okay? When it adds here that uh, your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you, that's not just merely recognizing the fact that obedience to parents is the best way to survive your childhood, although that's true. Right? A majority of what our parents instruct us in and the rules they present are for our safety because we're not smart enough to be independent. But what it's stressing here is, is a national representation. It's not just honor your father and mother so that you will have a long life and not die early. It's so that you as a people may live long in the land. God takes disrespect 
very seriously. In fact, if you read in Romans chapter 1, when Paul is labeling out all of the horrible sins that make up human nature, disrespecter of parents makes the list. So this commandment is given to honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord God is giving you. Notice the next few commandments are rapid fire. No explanation, no added warnings. And the reason is because they're pretty self-evident. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. There has never been a community on earth that didn't recognize the evil of these things, at least when they were performed against your own community. So maybe you could steal from your enemies. Maybe you could kill those who were outside the family. But there's never been a society that upheld murder as being a good. Okay. But what I want you to also notice is that all of these are a direct affront on the image of God. In fact, in another place, we're told that we should not murder specifically because mankind was created in the image of God. And so it bears the stamp of God, and an attack on another person is an attack on the image of God. Um, in the same way, you shall not commit adultery. One of the primary images that God uses in the Old Testament and expands upon in the New Testament for his relationship with mankind is the image of marriage. And so when he criticizes Israel in their, in their idolatrous worship, he refers to them as adulterers. Okay. And Paul unpacks this profoundly in Ephesians chapter 5 when he talks about how the relationship of marriage is supposed to reflect Jesus' relationship with the church. And then he quotes all the way back from the book of Genesis, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined one flesh. And he says, you might think I'm talking about marriage, but I'm really talking about Christ and the church. That's how close the image is, okay? Um, in the same way, you shall not bear false witness. In the epistle of James, uh, he talks about this. How can we be flippant with our words and bless God and curse those made in his image. And so all of these things reflect the reality of, uh, of who God is. But, but let's just look at them. First off, you shall not murder. This word is not just the broad word for kill. Okay? As we'll see in the law, the Bible recognizes that government carries the sword, that capital punishment is an appropriate use of governmental power. Um, when it uses this word for murder, it's a narrower term that seems to mean killing without moral or legal right. Okay? Legal right meaning there's been no due process. Um, uh, moral meaning not in self-defense. We'll see some examples of that later tonight. Okay? And so they're not to be swift to take the life of another person, not to commit adultery. And that word seems very narrow. But really, in the same way that you shall not murder recognizes the sanctity of human life, you shall not commit adultery recognizes the sanctity of sexuality. And so as this is built upon in the laws that are to come, it broadens out and any sexual act that falls out of the confines of God's plan for sexuality is broken in this commandment. In fact, Jesus takes it to its deepest level and he says, I tell you that if you have even lusted after a woman in your heart, you have in your heart committed adultery with her. 
okay? And so he takes this and he says the connotation of this is not just a single act where it says, well, I've never slept with a married woman, so I guess I've never broken this commandment. No, this is a, uh, in a, a personification of a broad category. You shall not steal. We'll see as this is unpacked in the law, that means stuff, but it also means human beings. It means kidnapping. It means taking anything that's not yours. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, the language that's used there is the language of the courtroom, falsely testifying. But we'll see that it's applied broadly in any falsehood that's used against another person. Okay, And so this isn't just a court of law, but the court of public opinion. Libel and slander would fit into these categories. And so there's these rapid fire, you shall nots, and then we get the last one in verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now isn't it striking there that it's totally content just to rapid fire these other commands, but it feels the need to extrapolate this one in a bunch of areas. I'm talking property, I'm talking about uh, romantic relationships, I'm talking about anything that belongs to your neighbors. Why? The primary reason is because the thing we're not to do here is not an external thing at all, but an internal one. And so it says here, you shall not covet, which is a neutral word, by the way. In Hebrew, it just means desire. But specifically here, it's desiring anything that belongs to someone else. See, most of the law we've read so far has been external in its observance, but this pushes it to the internal. That's why the Apostle Paul says that this is the commandment that made him recognize his need for a savior. He could tick all the other boxes. Yes, I've never slept with a married woman. I've never killed a person. Um, I've tried to be honest my whole life. But when he turned to his heart, that's where he found condemnation of the law. In fact, you might as well deal with it now. Not only does God's law reflect God's character, and reflect how we as his reflections are supposed to live to bring out that character, but it also shows us our need for a savior. James puts it like this. He says it operates like a mirror. Okay? He says, how can you look at the law of God and see that filth all over your face and just walk away and pretend it was never there? And so the law shows us where we fall short. It's like that line, uh, that laser line at the bowling alley that tells you when you fouled, okay? It lets you know when you're out of line. But that's not just, oh, shoot, I need to get back to center, but also, oh, my gosh, I've fallen short of um, my destiny as a human being. I've fallen short of my responsibility as a human being. In other words, I need a savior. So these are the ten words as they're presented. This is made the backbone of Israel's ethical code. And like I said, some people believe that the rest of the law is really just an explanation and an unpacking and a codifying of these Ten Commandments given here. Okay? So, um, <coughs> they hear these ten words, and then verse 18, Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. Now this is interesting, because these, uh, these things are received as dangerous. And so the people are shaking and they're trembling. But it's worth mentioning that one of the things that's mentioned here is the trumpet, and that was actually to call them closer. 
right? Remember, they were to wait until they heard the trumpet, and then they were to come closer. But when it actually goes down, all they have is fear. And I think there's two components in that. One is the law itself, okay? There is a difference between the glory and marvelous power of God and the glory and marvelous power of God against us as sinners, There's an interesting psalm, Psalm 29, where David is watching a storm move over the land of Israel. And he refers to the storm specifically as the voice of the Lord. And it's apparently a pretty incredible storm. He says that it's so bad it makes the deer give birth, right? Which is a phenomenon we still observe, that when natural disasters strike heavily, that that animals who are currently pregnant will prematurely give birth as a a, um, survival technique, okay? Um... He says that, the, uh, that there's tongues of fire and that it's breaking the cedars of Lebanon, which is this forest of the biggest trees that you can see in the land of Israel, right? And so it's a big deal. And so he talks about the storm moving and he says, and everyone in his temple says glory, right? And so outside it's this horrifying storm, but inside people recognize it as being their God on the move, the voice of the Lord. And so it's not fear. He says this, closing the psalm, he says, the Lord will give his people strength. He sat enthroned in the flood and he sits enthroned today. And so he takes the greatest storm the world has ever known and said, look, God was on the throne then. And so we can be confident in the storms now. But this storm is a different thing and they respond in fear. Okay, and so Part of that is just the phenomenon itself, but part of that is also the presentation of the law. There's a saying that death makes cowards of us all. When you recognize from a theological viewpoint that death is the consequence of sin, it's really the consequence of sin that we're afraid because we're guilty. And so they have this reaction. God is speaking directly to the people. And notice what they say in verse 19. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, don't fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And so they say, please, just you listen to God and tell us what he said. This is too intense for us. And he says, don't be afraid. And he says, God is doing this to test you. So to see if, uh, so that you may fear him and not sin. Now that's really interesting because he says, don't be afraid. God is doing this to make you afraid. Do you see that? But he means fear here in two different senses. One is the, the trembling reaction to consequence and the other is treating God with the respect he deserves, okay? And so the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. That's not shaking your knees, running away from the reality of God. It's something different. Not only that, but he says here that God has done this to test you. But remember, the word for test here doesn't mean to see if you can stand your ground. It means to train you, okay? And so God is revealing himself in all of his powers so that they'll remember the weight and the reality of his law, okay? That's what this means here. Just like the manna showed God as provider, here the thunder and lightning shows God as judge, And so, uh, verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. And so instead of entering in as they were called to do, they back out and Moses enters in alone. Verse 22, and the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. 
You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. So Moses enters in and God begins to build upon, expand upon the laws. That's why it opens up here with a re, uh, repeat of what we already know. Right? Commandment 2 said, no idols before me. And here it's said again. Okay? As we'll see, that's because he's moving forward. He's going to give in just a second the rules in chapter 21, verse 1. But he begins with just a basic understanding. No idols. Why? Because when you shape an idol, it's just something you made in an oven. And here is the God of the universe on Mount Sion that you've just experienced. You see the contrast there? And then second, it says that they are to make an altar of earth. An altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings. Okay, and so he recognizes sacrifice, and this is a great time to bring it up. Why? Because they've just encountered the God as judge and the law that they will be incapable of keeping. And so sacrifices are an essential ingredient of a relationship with God. And so they're laid on the table. But notice how it explains here. Um, It continues here. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool, tool on it, you'll profane it. And so now he goes further and he says, when you build this altar, either we've already seen make it out of earth or if you make it out of stone, he says, don't use any tools. And I I love the way this reads. You shall not build it of hewn stones for if you wield a tool on it, you'll profane it. It reminds me of what I've said to other people or what I've heard said to me. No, don't even try. You'll just screw it up. That's what it reads like. But that's not the point that is being made here. The recognition is that if this altar is a work of art, it will be a distraction in worship, right? We we see this in modern churches, don't we? Churches initially, in terms of of what I'm talking about, is the modern traditional church building. Remember that the church in the ancient world didn't have buildings. They met in houses. They rented public halls. But once we started building church buildings, especially in the Gothic age, the structure of the church with the annex and the narthex, all of these specific words for buildings uh, known as churches and not, you know, you don't have a narthex in a, in a high rise. You only have one in a church. Um, and the flying buttresses and all of these things were intentionally designed theologically. And so the flying buttresses were to draw your eyes up the skyline to these massive points at the top of these, you know, cathedrals pointing to the heavens. But even in our day and age, what happens when we walk into beautiful church buildings? We think about them being beautiful in their construction. We think about the maker of the building and not the maker who's worshipped in those buildings. And he continues on here. He says, not only will they profane it if they... If they build it with tools, but verse 26, you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed on it. Okay, context first. Remember here, most of the world lives in things that we would label today robes. Okay, and so the idea is if there's steps, as they step up, they might, uh, you know, um, expose themselves. Okay, now we're not given a reason why that's problematic. We do know that most of the religious world around Israel was very sexual in its nature in worship. And so, for example, there were the cult prostitutes. And so sexuality was merged with worship. And so it might be that that's the distinction, okay? 
Interestingly enough, when God lays out the clothing that the priests are supposed to wear, he actually makes them undergarments so that this is a non-issue entirely. But either way, let's just recognize that it's distracting in the same way that a beautiful altar is, an altar where um, you know, somebody is exposing themselves is problematic. Okay. Now, chapter 21, these are the rules that you shall set before them. The word there for rules is usually translated judgments, and that's helpful. You may remember that under the leadership of Jethro, they have appointed elders to help Moses with the leading, the judges, okay? The this judgments that are given here is the rule book for them, okay? It, this is the beginning of what we call the book of the covenant. And we'll notice as we read through it, the rules are all over the map. We're going to talk about laws when it comes to the courtroom. We're going to talk about laws when it comes to accidental um, death as well as murder. We're going to talk about laws and how you treat servants and how you treat foreigners. We're going to talk about when you borrow somebody's cow. It's very broad. But there's a couple of other things you need to keep in mind as we go through this. First off, the majority of the Ten Commandments are what we call apodictic. Apodictic commands are very easy to recognize because they start with either you shall or you shall not. Okay, an apodictic command is just a statement of do or do not. Okay, most of the laws we're about to encounter here, though, are casuistic. Okay, casuistic commands start with if, and they're situational in nature. If your cow, okay, that's a casuistic command. Now, as we look at these. <coughs> We also need to recognize that the laws presented here, as well as all of the law of Israel, is not like a comprehensive modern penal code, right? When we make laws, we make them airtight so that any possible expression of breaking that law is written into the law itself, right? Here, in Israel's law, the goal is not to create, um, you know, no loopholes, but it's paradigmatic in nature. It presents a single example that applies to anything that looks like this. In other words, these casuistic laws are presented of examples of how they should behave with the expectation that when slightly different things happen, they'll know how to respond. Okay? And so it's not exhaustive in nature. It's not supposed to be. It's example in nature. Now notice where he begins in verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave. Now, First, just notice, we just have to ask the question, why start here? I mean, you would think murder. You would think you would pick the really serious things. We're going to start there. Uh, he's going to talk about um, certain pagan practices that need the death sentence. You would think, like the Ten Commandments, you'd start with the God word. Uh, but, but here, it's, it's how you treat your slaves. Um, you, would even, uh, you would even be right in having that suspicion. The reason I say that is because the Code of Hammurabi, which is a law code that we have in almost its totality that dates from about generally this same time, um, begins with the serious stuff and deals with servants at the very end. <coughs> so why here does it start with this? It seems to me most likely because, because this is where Israel comes from. Okay? And so giving this precedent is because they of all people should know how to be treated, one, and also, God cares about servants, as he's just demonstrated by bringing them out of Egypt. And so he starts here. Now, second, when we read, when you buy a Hebrew slave, the cackles on our moral neck go up, right? And we go, hey, wait a minute. 
I'm not interested in any law about when you buy a Hebrew slave. Why isn't this thou shall not buy a Hebrew slave, right? And the first thing you need to understand is that the slavery that the Old Testament talks about would be better labeled indentured servitude, okay? It's not like the slave trade of the 1800s, um, you know, that was racial in nature, that involved the kidnapping and uh, involved people becoming permanently someone else's property. And we'll see some of this as we go along tonight. But you have to recognize how different the world is that we're talking about. In fact, both the Old Testament and the New Testament see kidnapping in order to enslave as being against the character of God. Okay? And so I know you're probably familiar with the fact that some Christians tried to justify their owning of slaves uh, because the Bible references slavery and doesn't directly condemn it. That slavery, it absolutely does. And they just conveniently ignored those statements, okay? But when it talks here, the second thing I want you to notice is that it's talking about, um, about the slaves being Hebrews. In other words, it's within their own nation here. So let's look at the law. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. Okay, here's the first earmark that this is different than slavery as we're talking about. The maximum time that you could sell yourself into a dentured servitude is six years, and no matter what, you set them free on the seventh. Okay, clearly it's following the same Sabbath pattern that we've already seen. But what I want you to recognize here is that... Uh, that this is a temporary arrangement. Now, why would somebody do this? Okay, the second thing um, I want you to understand is for the most part, these Hebrew slaves were also the ones selling themselves, okay? There are a couple of instances where you don't have a say in the matter and almost all of them involve debt if you're a Hebrew. It means you can't pay your bill and so the government forces you into indentured servitude to pay it off. Also, just a side note, no prison system in Israel, okay? <coughs> um, <coughs> but what it says here is it sets this idea that it's only to be for six years. Verse three, if he comes, <coughs> comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master <coughs> gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Okay, so here's the problem that this is dealing with. What if you're an indentured servitude, servant in a household and another servant and you get married? Your sentence is up. Hers is not. Then does he have to let her free even though she hasn't fulfilled her time? And the answer is just given no, okay? Um, it continues here <coughs> in verse 5. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. <coughs> then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door. Thank you. Um, to the door or doorpost and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be a slave forever. Okay, and so here's what it says. If that servant decides that he would like to stay with his family and with his master permanently, there's a way to go about that. But I want you to notice that this opens with the statement, I love my master, okay? There's a difference between the terminology and the substance uh, of servitude and slavery 
and the way that it was to be lived. And we'll see over and over again that the laws that delineate servanthood, this indentured servanthood in Israel, are very different than just seeing servants as property or subhuman. And so <coughs> it recognizes that ideally a servant likes his position, okay? And so if he loves his master, he can say, I'd rather, instead of going out and being my own, I'd rather stay a part of this household, right? And so what they were supposed to do is publicly pierce his ear as a recognition that he was committing for the long haul. Now, it's worth mentioning that for two reasons. One, because there's a prophecy of Jesus that, that speaks to him opening his ear before the Lord, and it's a reference to this practice. And so when Jesus comes, he comes as a bondservant. He comes as one who has dedicated his life to serving God. Second, this is the term that Paul likes to use for himself more than the term apostle. So sometimes he does say Paul an apostle, but more often he says Paul a bondservant of God, a servant by love, somebody who's chosen to dedicate his life to the service of Jesus. Um, verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has de uh, designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since she has broken faith with her. Okay, and so the recognition here um, is really, really hard to nail down. What it says is it'll be different if a woman is sold into, um, into this form of slavery by her father. And then notice again what it says, who has designated her for himself. If she does not please her master, who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. In other words, if he decides not to marry her, he has to let her go. Okay? And so understand that this is, there's more going on here than just a maid. Okay? We're talking here about marriage. He adds here, um, Verse 9, if he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. Okay, and so that there's this added aspect of servanthood doesn't deny her value as a wife. That right is to be respected. Okay, now as much as I'm trying to help us understand slavery in the ancient world and specifically in Israel, how different it was, we still have to recognize um, that the practice itself is a bit of a head-scratcher, okay? That, that it's, not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily a great state for human beings. Um, we'll talk about this more as we, as we go on, but I do want you to recognize that the orientation is in this practice, God cares about the rights of the servant. She can't just be mistreated because she's a servant. If he takes on another wife, he can't just relegate her to second-class status. No, all of her rights as wife, food, clothing, and her marital rights, those would be her conjugal rights, are still hers. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without <coughs> payment of money. He has to let her go. Verse 12, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. But if he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint to you a place which he may flee. Okay, and so a distinction is made here between premeditated murder and accidental murder. And this includes not just um, like happens later in the Old Testament, 
the handle of your axe disconnecting from its head and that going flying and accidentally killing someone. Not just true accidental, but also what we would call uh, unpremeditated manslaughter, meaning you were in a fight, things got out of hand, and you accidentally killed them. Okay? What it says here is for those people, he'll appoint a place which they may flee. Now remember, in the world at this time, um, the, the delineation was if you killed my brother, intentional and planned or accidental, I will take your life, okay? Um, vengeance killing and family justice, uh, you know, was a major thing. But here that is stopped in its tracks. There's a way in Israel to deal with this. They have to do something about it, right? They have to flee to the appointed place, the refuge city, as we'll learn about later. Verse 14, but if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by cunning, you should take him from my altar that he may die. The practice in those days was to throw yourself on the mercy of the altar. The modern concept we would call sanctuary, right? And what he says is, if he intentionally killed someone, no sanctuary. Okay? Continues here. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now the word there for strikes is very strong. Most of the time we see someone strike someone in scripture, it puts them on the ground. Um, one translator suggested beat down. Okay? And so this isn't that you got in a heated conversation with your parents and you slapped them. This is, this is that you beat them down. Okay? And it says here that the sentence is death. Verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay? And so it says here both the stealing of people and the buying of people or the owning of people in this sense is to be dealt with very seriously. It receives capital punishment. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Uh, that's clearly rooted in, the, in both the command we just read as well as the one in the Ten Commandments. And even the word here speaks of something relatively strong. It's in the continual present tense, okay? And so they are constantly cursing their parents. Nonetheless, we have to recognize that it's a severely strong punishment. Verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear, only he shall pay for the loss of his time and he shall have him thoroughly healed. In other words, if they get in a fight and somebody's seriously injured, if it leads to death, the implication is here, then that needs to go through the things we've already read. If it just leads to injury, then he's responsible to take care of him while he's ill and to, um, <coughs> to compensate him for the loss of his working time, okay? A lot of our modern legal code is, is stems from these places. Um, but a distinction is made here between these two things. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. For servants as well, the death sentence matters. However, verse 21, but if the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. Now, some translations for the slave is his property, and once again, I understand why that makes us uncomfortable. I'm not going to try and explain it away, but it is worth mentioning what the author clearly means here, which is that he doesn't have to compensate his servant because while he's in bed, he's not working, okay? And so that'd be like compensating himself. And so there's clearly a property emphasis here, but it has to do with that contract. Um, 
Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. A few notes here. One is that this is not, this is not assaulting a pregnant woman, right? This is two men who accidentally, in their fight, injure a pregnant woman. Second, when it says here so that her children come out, we really don't know what that word means. It's a very rare word. It may be speaking of premature birth, which in the ancient world would be, for the most occasions, a death sentence to the child. Um, it may mean miscarriage, which would also point to the same thing, but we really don't know. But the recognition is, uh, is here um, that, uh, that the death of a child is very serious, but if the child is born and everything is okay, then it will just be a fine, okay, that the judges and the husband will determine. Um, and then notice what it says, uh, verse 23, but if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. And the first thing is I want you to notice the context. It's specifically talking about her unborn child, and it's worth noting that. The Bible treats the life of the unborn very seriously here. And it says, if the uh, unborn is accidentally killed, there should be full consequence of the law. But this principle is a broader one. We know it as the lex talonis, okay? Um, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. It's something that Jesus references. But when we read this, <coughs> there's a tendency to think two things. One, we assume right off the bat that this is a statement of literal law. And so if you accidentally poke out someone's eye, they get to take yours. We don't have any expression in the entire history of Israel where we see that lived out. Okay? The idea here is that the punishment should fit the crime, and it's stated very graphically. The second thing I want to point out is that this sets the limit for the punishment as well as demanding justice. Okay? And so we would be wrong to say that all this does is say you can't take more than an eye. It clearly demands that justice is done, but it also says that you can't take two, right? There's not to be an escalation here. It's a restraint on revenge. It's a restraint on judgment here. In fact, notice how this is explained in the next few verses. <coughs> when a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. An eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Do you see why they're using these two illustrations? But what does it look like? Does it say, therefore, you should knock out the eye of his master? No, it says the slave goes free. Right? If you abuse your servant to the degree that you permanently damage their body, that's the end of their indentured servitude. They owe you no more of their life. Okay? Once again, it maintains the dignity of the servants. Now you say, now wait a minute, just a few verses ago they were allowed to beat their servants as long as it didn't kill them. That's absolutely true. Okay. Once it, I mean, we, we don't even feel justified in spanking our kids often today. And so the distance is there. Um, but we'll leave that there. Um, so verse 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Okay, so an ox kills a person. If that happens, the ox needs to die. Put him down. But 
the owner shall not be liable unless, verse 29, if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and the owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also should be put to death. The idea here is that the ox has attempted to hurt people in the past and the owners let it live. Okay? What this is saying is that we're responsible for other people, right? Clearly. And so, so if we know that something that belongs to us is dangerous and we allow someone else to use it, that, <coughs> that danger is on our shoulders. That's our responsibility. Okay? That's what's being said here. Um, now, here's something that's very important. Look at verse 30. If a ransom is imposed on him, then he shall give for the redemption of his life whatever is imposed on him. Okay, so he's supposed to be put to death, but there is a second option, and it's labeled here a ransom. Here's the premise, that the one whose child or wife was killed by the animal can instead suggest a financial number that can spare his life. But notice the premise here of this ransom is that he's already lost his life. And so freely as a gift, they offer a way out of this, okay, financially. So this is not, this is not, you know, a form of justice for the rich where they can just buy their way out of jail time or a death sentence. It's that the family, the ones who are offended, can mercifully make a different offer. Why is that important? Because when we get into the book of Leviticus, this is how it's going to talk about the sacrifices, when we offer a sacrifice of atonement as a ransom to God, our life is already deserving of death. And God has offered instead an option to put a sacrifice in our place. Okay, That's where this word ransom comes from. It'll become more valuable later. Um, <coughs> okay, so it continues on here, verse 31. If it gores a man's son or daughter, he shall be dealt with according to the same rule. If the ox gores a slave, male or female, the owner shall give to their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. Now, if I'm reading that right, it means that he doesn't die for the life of a servant. That's, I think, what this reads. It may mean, on top of that, there's a financial component, but that seems weird. You're already dying, right? And so it's worth reiterating again that I'm not explaining away or justifying the reality of this world. This Old Testament law is given custom fit to the, to the culture of its time. Okay? And God constantly expresses in these laws that he cares about the rights and respects. But there does seem to be a class distinction that's made here, and I'm not going to try and remove it. I do plan as we move through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy to do some more research um, to think through these things. But I don't want to, um, I don't want to brush over these things because they're clearly here. I do promise that we'll talk about them. Um, verse 33. When a man opens a pit or when a man digs a pit and does not cover it and an ox or a donkey falls into it, the owner of the pit shall make restoration. Okay, He shall give money to his owner and the dead beast shall be his. So what's the idea here? You dig a well in your backyard, you don't put a lid on it, and somebody's animal gets loose, wanders into your yard and falls. That death is on your hands because you should have covered the well. And so here's this recognition that if it's on your property, you're responsible for what happens there. And so it's setting up that responsibility in terms of restoration to the animal, either in money or in a, in a like animal. And we're going to close up in just a second. We didn't even make it halfway that I planned, but let's just do the last few verses of 21 here. 
When one man's ox butts another so that it dies, they shall sell the live ox and share its price, and the dead beast also they shall share. Okay, so an animal kills another animal. The dead one gets split to be eaten, uh, and the live one is sold and split, okay? And so notice that this isn't as severe as some of the other things we've, we've recognized here because the premise is here that it's just something that happens. Sometimes animals misbehave. A lot, of the, uh, a lot of the laws in this law book are agrarian, and so they can't be directly translated to life. Okay? But the recognition is here that, um, <coughs> that the owner bears some responsibility, but not full responsibility. Okay? And so the best thing they can do in this scenario is to split the cost and therefore split the, um, the benefit of this sell. And then verse 36, or if it's known that the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has not kept it, he shall repay ox for ox and the dead beast shall be his, uh, which I actually think is kind of funny. What it says here is if, like we read about earlier, that animal was violent and had attacked other animals before, here he gives him a replacement animal and all he gets is the carcass, okay, which may feed him but is also a reminder of his foolishness um, and like the, like the book of Ecclesiastes says, better is a living dog than a dead lion. I think you could say the same thing about a corpse of an ox uh, versus the living one that it cost you. So we're going to save what to do with all these laws and why it matters to us for another time. But I do w want to just provide a note here, which is that God is clearly concerned about justice in the sense of people not taking advantage of other people and giving a clear path for things to be addressed and dealt with. But let's close there and we'll pick up next week. Let's pray. Father, I ask that as we, um, as we think on thing, these things this week, we would be able to delineate what we've read into two separate categories. First, there is the Ten Commandments that are held up, the Ten Words, as a representation of your character, um, as being something that is broadly uh, important, as being recodified and restated for us as Christians, um, as being a full expression of your character in human life. And then there's all of these casuistic situational laws. Um, and I pray, Lord, that with, with the first, we really would aspire to be a people that reflect who you are. And with the second, we would recognize that sometimes there are distances that can't be bridged, that sometimes there are principles that still apply, that sometimes there are direct laws in here that we should reflect on, and that most importantly, that these laws are given to a nation, Israel, so that they can operate as a nation, um, which is different than who we are as a church. We thank you for your word. We pray that you continue to teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.